I am confident that while there will be many differences in this industrial revolution, it will happen quicker, it'll be more global, the productivity increases might actually be a little greater. I am very confident that we will see higher standards of living, more jobs, and people working fewer hours. Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. This is your host, Mark Whitby. My guest today is Jeff Wild. Jeff has built and sold several technology companies. He was the founder of WorkMarket, an enterprise software platform enabling companies to manage their freelancers, which he sold to ADP in 2018. And he was also the founder of a tech company called Spinback, which he sold to Salesforce.com. Jeff is an angel investor, a startup advisor, and the author of two Amazon bestselling books, including The End of Jobs. Welcome, Jeff. Great to meet you. It is great to be here. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So um, the, your latest book, The End of Jobs, is a very provocative title, and it's definitely going to grab the attention of my audience. My audience is recruiters, headhunters, owners of staffing agencies uh, who charge a fee to companies to help them attract and acquire top talent. So, you know, they're very, they're, they have a huge appetite for predictions on the world of work and and uh, the way that jobs may change in the future. Uh, so when you talk about the end of jobs, that immediately is going to, you know, hook people's interest for sure. Um, well, it's, it's good they've got a big appetite because I, I got a lot to serve here. <laughs> All right, great. Well, listen, just before we dive into that subject, how and why did you get into this particular field? Well, the field itself was because of work market. So my first two startups were not in the world of labor. Uh, the first one failed miserably and nearly bankrupted me. The second one, we had the successful exit. Uh, and with work market, we were looking at the different trends in the world of work. And we saw this huge trend in on-demand labor. There was a study by our friends at McKinsey that talked about about a trillion dollars in on-demand labor in the world in 2006, 2007, when I read their study. But importantly, they made the statement that if companies had the systems and processes to manage on-demand labor efficiently and compliantly, that one trillion would go to three to four trillion. And as a former venture capitalist, as a startup guy, you want to, you know, you want to found companies that go after big markets, and if you find a market that has a T in it, that trillion word, then uh, that's a pretty good place to start. So we started conceptualizing, and over the next two years of back and forth between my co-founder and I, and business plans and whiteboarding, we came up with Work Market, this platform to help companies manage their freelancers. Wow. So first of all, could you? You, you've talked about on-demand labor. Could you just define that so we know what, yeah. That is a great question and one that not enough people get into because it is, there's a lexiconal issue in this space. And on-demand labor is to me the over, overall, overall catch-all term that is everything that you're talking about. So it could be gig working, contingent working, contracting, consulting, temp working. To me, on-demand labor is anybody that is not your W-2 that is doing work for you. And so it is labor that can be Got turned it. on and turned off very quickly. Ah, okay. Now I, I, I totally get what we're, what we're talking about. So that's cool. So, Always. yeah. So just before I, you, you made a statement there that I don't want to step over because it, I think it's significant, which is that 
um, your first startup uh, was a you know didn't work out. Could you just speak briefly to that? Because the one of the themes of the show is resilience, um, and so I think that's an important part of your sort of backstory here. Well, I will tell you, it's a vital part of my backstory, and it is. You know, we started that company, which is very similar to the second company that did eventually get sold to Salesforce. And there were some co-founder issues. There were three of us. It wasn't me. It was the other two were at each other's throats. And we had to shut the company down because they ended up suing each other. And oh, no. I will tell you, I blamed myself for it, that I couldn't solve their problems. I I ruminated myself that I wasn't strong enough to to, to take it on my own. And, and uh, there was a solid period coming a little over a month where I didn't leave my apartment, something actually we're all used to during the pandemic not so used to um, back then because it was really depression that was driving it. And mm. it's uh, it's those moments and those networks that you rely on to bring you resilience when you've run out of your own. And every now and again, you know, I always make the statement about startups that my favorite statement, uh, my favorite piece of advice is the key to success in startups is getting knocked down seven times and picking yourself up eight. And I always say, look, it's pick yourself up. You have to have the will to stand up, dust yourself off, and keep going because your perseverance is the biggest thing that will cause your startup to be successful. But sometimes you can't pick yourself up. Sometimes you do need to rely on those hands that will reach down. Sometimes you run out of your own reservoir, and that's okay. And we should be so lucky to have somebody to lend us their resilience when we run out of ours. And so I was lucky to have family and friends that lent me theirs and eventually let me uh, help me get up, dust myself off, and keep going. Amazing. When was this, Jeff? This was 2008. End okay. of 2007 into 2008. And and was the failure purely this conflict between founders, or did it have to do with the timing of the financial crisis and everything? Or This was 100% because these two idiots couldn't get along. Wow, that must have been so a, frustrating. Yeah, a very similar concept had a very good exit three, maybe four years later. And so if we had been able to execute on it then, which I have no doubt on the execution, yeah. uh, we would have had a much bigger exit, much better outcome. Wow. Okay. And what was the financial and personal cost of that experience, Jeff? The financial cost was total for me. I was fund helping to fund the business. Uh, and then we did raise some outside capital, but this was almost all from friends of mine, and I didn't think that they should lose their money because of this risk. I thought that was mm. a, just a silly risk. Mm. And so I paid them back with my last dollars. Okay. There's a great irony because it's one of the world's wealthiest families that I gave my last you know, couple of bucks to. They didn't know that. If they had known it, they never would have taken it. They were like, wow, this is very honorable and whatever. I was like, yep, yep, yep. I'm going to go see if I have to move back home now. <laughs> Uh, but uh, that was the financial cost. The personal cost was um, confidence, I would say, and just a shaking of this foundation. Look, I had had the great pleasure of working at all these wonderful institutions like J.P. Morgan and rising through the ranks and going to these wonderful educational institutions like Cornell University and Harvard University. And you get the sense, or certainly people keep telling you, oh my gosh, you're the best and you're going to do such great things. And to go through those things and then wind up penniless uh, is 
is tough. And so it makes you question everything you'd been up to that point. And that was challenging. And so you got to pick yourself up or reach for those hands that are helping you up, dust yourself off and keep going. Mm. Uh, because I'm a huge believer in the growth mindset. And you know what? This is a learning experience. It's tough to see when you're in it. I will tell you that, Mark. There yeah. were everybody and uh, was saying, oh, you're going to look back on this and think it's so great. And I was like, ah, shut up. Get out. I don't want to hear that because you don't want to hear it at the time. But mm-hmm. it is certainly true. Well, the reason I think this is super relevant now is because for many, many business owners and entrepreneurs, this last year has been possibly one of the toughest of their of their careers. And so I think there will be uh, some parallels there. What, you know, now that you've been through that experience, if you had a friend, let's say, who is, you know, really at that low point and their business was unraveling, what what would you say to them? Well, I'd first probably say, if you're going to do my first piece of advice, I guess, to just general startup founders is if you're going to do three startups and one of them has to fail and bankrupt you, have it be the first. <laughs> right. Okay. Have it be the first one. I'm um, so sorry. The The actual piece of advice was, is look, I view the world, Mark, through a lens of equations. I'm very data-driven and I'm very analytical, sometimes to, to my detriment. But when you think about the equation of is this company going to be successful? There are a lot of variables in that equation and some are within your control and some are not. A global pandemic is not. The economic environment because of the global pandemic is not. But the biggest variable that determines the outcome if that company is going to be successful is you. It is the founder. And there are many times that the founder is going to put the company on his or her back and get it done. And it is your force of will. It is your resilience that will determine if that variable is the net positive variable. It has to be, almost has to be, in order for the equation to be successful. And so you need to be mindful of the fact that everything sucks, it's outside of your control, control what you can control, because your ability to push through and be resilient is the biggest variable in whether or not that company is successful. The counter to that, by the way, is to listen to the other data, because there are other variables in that equation. Maybe the environment is such that it doesn't make sense for this business right now. Maybe your competitors were in a stronger position and now you're really in a bad spot. And you should listen to all that and not just say push through because there are times where the most intelligent thing to do is to fold it up, dust yourself off and do something else. So listen and look at all the data, but know that the biggest variable in that equation is a kind of unknowable variable, which is, are you going to push through and get it done? Mm. Interesting. Thank you. That's, yeah. Uh, I think many people will, will relate to that. So, so thanks. That's awesome, Jeff. What, um, let's talk about the context for this book. I, I know that you've done a lot of research about the history of work. Um, you know, as you said, you're a data guy, you're analytical. Um, so what have you learned about the history, the current world of work, and that's enabled you to make predictions about the future of work? So I will say this, that history tends to rhyme. I'm certainly not the first to say that, and hopefully not the last. And as we are in the early stages of what many are calling the fourth industrial revolution, robots and AI, 
to me, it is silly to hope to understand how companies, workers, and society might react to the fourth industrial revolution without looking how companies, workers, and societies reacted to the first three. Okay. So when we think about mechanization, electrification, and computerization, the first three industrial revolutions, this broadly mark is what we've seen. In the beginning, we see a bunch of people freak out and predict all kinds of doom and say, oh my God, all the jobs are going to go. In the middle, we see a lot of jobs go. We see a lot of economic and social unrest, disruption, dislocation. We see lower costs of production. We see greater output. We see the beginnings of more jobs. By the end, we have more jobs in society. We have a higher standard of living across society. And we have people that work fewer hours. Those are the three very clear trends from the history of work that are almost uninterrupted. Higher standards of living, people working fewer hours, and more jobs being created. And so as we look at the fourth, and we already know that we've seen the doomsdayer stage. We've all seen the, oh my God, McKinsey predicts 50% of jobs, and Oxford University predicts 47% of jobs. And First of all, no, that's not what those studies said at all. That's what the headline was that went around the world, but that is not what those studies said for those of us that actually spend our hours reading those kinds of studies and diving into them. Um, But I am confident that while there will be many differences in this industrial revolution, it will happen quicker, it'll be more global, the productivity increases might actually be a little greater. I am very confident that we will see higher standards of living, more jobs, and people working fewer hours. And the data when we go through industry by industry does certainly back that up. Hmm. Okay. All right. That's interesting. So what's your take on the current state of labor markets then? I'm, I In the BBC today, as when on the day of us recording this, um, there's 1.72 million jobless, which is the highest it's been in five years. And the biggest risk of losing their jobs between 25 and th- ages 25 and 34. This is for the UK. I don't know how that applies to the US, um, but I would I would guess it's broadly similar. Um, so, I mean, this is a little bit, this is driven by a global pandemic rather than necessarily the fourth industrial revolution you're talking about. They maybe are just happening kind of at the same same time. But what do you think is going on in the job market right now? Well, to your point of they're happening at the same time, and they're certainly influencing each other, right? Mm -hmm. Are companies going to bring those workers back at as great a level, or Mm -hmm. will they have adjusted to digital environments, digital payments, digital commerce, and therefore not bring as many workers back into retail, into quick-serve restaurants, into into other environments? Because the majority of the job losses have been in pandemic-related industries. So we don't know how much that is going to snap back. Let people talk about the tech acceleration of digital payments, digital commerce, digital uh, work. And we don't know how much of that will go back at the time, God willing, soon when we can fully go back. Mm-hmm. So the short answer is always, we don't know. And if you had asked me what's going on in the world of work pre-pandemic, I'd have a much more thoughtful answer. But the reality is, is we don't know because things are moving so quickly in this pandemic. And anybody that is making predictions and saying, oh, when the pandemic's over 50, you know, this is going to happen, that's going to happen, should be putting the appropriate caveats of, but we don't really know. Like, we will know how much the pandemic accelerated the future of work 
12 to 18 months from now. 12 to 18 months from now, we'll have a really good idea about how the next 20 years will look. Right now, we really don't know. We have a good sense and directionally, things are moving in an accelerated timeway, timeline. Certainly from a remote work standpoint, there is no question that we have massively accelerated the engagement of remote workers and flexible work arrangements. Yeah. In regards to on-demand labor, there's an argument to be made that there'll be an acceleration. There's an argument to be made that it'll be a deceleration. So I, I'm in no position to predict where the on-demand labor markets really even are right now because the data there is much more murky. And when you think about robots and AI, there's an argument to be made that companies will engage robots and AI at a higher rate than they did before the pandemic. There is, again, an argument to be made, Mark, that companies won't have the money to make the investments necessary to engage robots and AI. We may have pushed back the timeline of robots mm. and AI, and we won't know until we see capital spending, until we see robotic implementations for two or three quarters of normalized spending patterns, and then mm. we'll have a better idea. Makes total sense. Um, I think you're absolutely right. The about the pandemic influencing, you know, the, the changes in the labor market uh, as well. I, the other headline I saw today is Aviva, which is a big British insurance company, uh, used to be called Norwich Union, um, is they've, they've announced they're not going back. They're staying virtual. They're not going back to offices in the same way. They're going to massively scale back their investment in real estate and their spend on, you know, on, uh, on offices. And they're going to still make spaces available for the times when it's required or when people just want to be around other people, but they're, you know, it's going to be drastically reduced. So that's going to have a, a knock-on effect, of course, on all the businesses that rely on the footfall and the, you know, passing trade and like little lunch places or retail outlets and that sort of thing. Um, what's your, what are you seeing in, ter- in the near term and the long term regarding, I know that, you know, the pandemic's thrown everything off and you can't make any, you know, um, solid predictions, but what, you know, what are you guessing is going to happen in this, sh- in this sort of near and then longer term? Oh, I'm happy to guess, but I will right. put the appropriate caveats on that I am <laughs> I am guessing. So I think remote work, Mark, to your point about Aviva and many other companies that have made that statement and many more that are thinking about that kind of statement. But I would again say with Aviva, let's see how that plays out. Let's see how much office space they actually reduce. Do they just de-densify? Therefore, their footprints aren't that much smaller. And people make the mistake of thinking, oh, if they are allowing remote work, they're going to immediately go offshore and things like that. Not true. 93% of workers that are remote end up within uh, a commutable distance of the office because people still want to come in one week a month. We are a social animal. We don't want to be sitting up in the mountains just getting our work done and then staring at the countryside. As lovely as that may be for a week or two, maybe even a month. It is not how people want to live their lives. They want to actually be with their colleagues as much as we may complain about office time. They just don't want to be there and they don't need to be there nine to five, five days a week. But you want that collaboration. You want that serendipitous encounter space. You want people to be together and people want to be together. So the idea that we're going to go entirely remote is completely fanciful. But 
shocking nobody that's uh, that's listening here, I'm going to start with history and data. So pre-pandemic in the industrialized world, about 1.5% of the workforce worked remotely. Now, definitions are important here because remote work is specifically more than 50% of your time. Now, the 50% is very important from a tax nexus standpoint as to where you are taxed. And from an office infrastructure standpoint, because if you're coming way less than 50% of the time, do I need to allocate infrastructure to you or can I just hot desk you? So 1.5% was working remotely. And over the 10-year period from 2010 to 2020, we saw 100% growth, which is fascinating, by the way, in the world of labor statistics, because you very rarely see growth that high. You very rarely see a doubling over a 10-year period. The times you do is when you start with a very low number, like that 1.5. So we went from 1.5 to 3%. The reason we didn't go higher is there were two big impediments to more remote work. One was the antiquated mindset. And we all know the manager that says, oh, I know the studies say remote workers are happier, they're healthier, they're more productive, they're more engaged, they have higher retention rates. But I think productivity happens when people are always in the office. I think presence equals productivity. So mindsets, number one. Number two were the infrastructures, policies, and procedures. It's one thing, Mark, to say you can work remotely. It's another to make sure that you have access to all the company's systems outside the company's four walls. It's another to make sure that there is a remote meeting option for every single meeting, not just, oh, wait, Mark's remote, let's put on a Zoom. It's there's a standard and a default. And so those are the kinds of things that are necessary for remote work, and both were impediments in March of 2020, both had to go. Mindsets yeah. had to change. Infrastructures, policies, and procedures had to be put in place. But it doesn't mean that we're going to end up at 40% of the workforce working remotely. It's important to remember, by the way, that when people talk about remote work, there is a natural limit. In the UK, I think it's at about 39%. In the United States, it's 42%. Across the OECD, it's about uh, 37%. And because clearly people that are in manufacturing and in logistics and in extraction industries, you know, you can't be a coal miner working from home. Right. You can't actually do that. And so there is a natural limit. So when we look at the surveys of workers and what workers want, you don't see a lot of workers that say, I want to go 100% remote. Mm-hmm. Much like you don't see a lot of workers that say, I want to go 100% back to the office. You see most people say, I want a flexible work arrangement. And then you start parsing that down as to who wants to be back to our definition of remote. And we start to get around the six to 10%. So I usually say 8% that are going to be full-time remote. Again, full-time remote means you do come to the office every now and again, by the way. It's just you're fully classified as remote. And we start to see flexible work arrangements in the 32 to 33% of the labor force. Now, again, keep in mind, our average is... 37% in the OECD. So you're talking about the vast majority of people that can work outside of their office will want a flexible work arrangement and about 20% are going to work fully remote. So that's what the data will tell us. That's what behavior patterns will tell us. And that's what history would tell us. Before I go to my next question, I'd like to share one of the keys to my success in recruitment and in business. You may have noticed that a lot of the people I interview on this show have a coach. That's not a coincidence. Most high achievers have a coach, including me. I've worked with various coaches over the last 20 years, and it's been a huge factor in my own personal and business growth. Here's why. 
Sometimes it's hard to see the forest for the trees and it really helps to take a step back and look at how you can improve the business and get a fresh outside perspective from someone who's bringing new ideas and insights to the table. Plus as a business owner, who is holding you accountable and helping you stay on track? So I wanna encourage you, if you're not already working with a coach, get one. It doesn't have to be me. There are plenty of amazing coaches out there. Just find someone who you believe will add measurable value to your business and can help you get to the next level. If you do want to explore a coaching relationship with me, then you're welcome to apply for a free 30-minute strategy session at recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. This is not a sales call. My number one objective is to help you to get clear on your goals, identify the roadblocks that are holding you back, and create a strategic plan to increase your billings and grow your business. I promise you'll leave our session feeling focused, re-energized, and excited to take your business to the next level. You can apply at www.recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. It's interesting because I interviewed um, someone a few weeks ago called Abed Hamid, who's a venture capitalist in the recruiting space with James Kahn, who you might have heard of. Uh, so they have a business called The Recruitment Entrepreneur. They help uh, set up scalable and exitable recruiting businesses. And they did, they've got, I don't know, a couple hundred employees across their portfolio companies at the moment. And they did an internal survey on this very topic. And the results were very similar to what you just shared. The, you know, majority were looking for some kind of flexible middle ground uh, where they had the best of both worlds, really. I will say um, most of these surveys fall into 10% want to go fully remote. Yeah. 80 to 85% want to go flexible and about 5% are like, yeah, no, I really want to be back in the office full time or they know they don't have a choice. Like if you're the receptionist, you're going to have to be in the office full time. Interesting. So talk to me about long-term and like, can you elaborate on this fourth industrial revolution that you're talking about? Uh, so that I would love to hear your perspective because you, you know, you get the sort of uh, stuff you see in the news, like the robots are going to take our jobs, which you alluded to earlier. Um, but what do you really think is, you know, the, the, the likelihood in terms of that fourth revolution? So I think the likelihood is very high, meaning will it happen or not? Yeah. When we think about these industrial revolutions, Mark, they're defined by a massive increase in some sort of technology. And that increase creates so high a productivity gain that the balance of power between companies and workers massively shifts to companies. It's The balance of power is always with companies, but it shifts even greater. And companies tend to extract increased profit from it. They tend not to give those increased profits back to workers, shockingly. And workers get taken advantage of for a period of time and they need to have counterbalancing forces that rise. Usually those take the form of union, social safety net and regulation. We can dive deep into that. That is kind of the first half of the book. But when we think about job losses, it's important to look at history. It's important to look at data. It's important to look at how companies actually engage workers. And we can do some anecdotes in a second, but let's stay with data. There are about 704 different job classifications. We can break job functions down into 704 different functions. And importantly, we need to look at the component tasks of each function because history would tell us that it's the component tasks of the function and whether or not they are repetitive high volume tasks 
that says whether or not the job will get automated. If zero to 50% of the tasks in any job are repetitive high volume tasks, then that job usually has no changes, just no changes. It adapts, some of the tasks start floating away and are being done by machines, and the job continues exactly as it is with normal economic growth in that job category. 50 to 75% of the component tasks within a job are repetitive high volume tasks. We see about half those jobs go. Hmm. We see that there are four people doing it, machines do a bunch of the tasks, and now we only have two people doing it. I mean, these are obviously broad generalizations. Hmm. 75 to 100% of the component tasks are repetitive high volume tasks. We see almost 100% of those jobs go. They just are completely displaced, and people in that industry have to be retrained and do something else. And when we just do that math, we just look at the repetitive high volume tasks within our 704 different job function categorizations. We look at the number of people in those job functions. We get to 10 to 15%. That is the math and what the math would tell us. If you were to look at those job functions and say, who has a degree of exposure, meaning 50% or greater, then you get to your 50% number, Mm -hmm. right? And that's where that headline comes from. But that headline is not taking into account what's happened to jobs that are susceptible. Some get displaced, some don't get displaced at all, and some get displaced entirely. And so we need to be thoughtful about that. And you need to think about how companies actually engage workers because just because a technology exists to automate something doesn't mean the jobs go. You can look at waiters and waitresses. The tech has existed to displace waiters and waitresses for 10 to 15 years. There is no reason when I walk into that restaurant, I cannot see the menu and order directly on that menu and have that go right to the kitchen. I do not need a human to come over and ask me how I'm doing. But we like it. And we like Mm. to ask the human, not ask the algorithm. Hey, I'm really in the mood for pasta. What's the best pasta here? Because the algorithm can do that. Hey, I really want a meat dish. What's the best wine to pair with that? An algorithm can do that. But we want that human. And so just because a tech exists doesn't mean a job gets displaced. So how did you come up with 702 uh, (laughs) job? Okay. Uh, Oxford University actually did. That was Oxford. Okay. Um, and much smarter people than me did that. <laughs> but what, what does that really mean? Like what counts as a job cat- category to be counted up to 702? Are you talking about like a, a component of that job or a job, like say nurse, firefighter, I, a job, you know, computer nurse, programmer, firefighter, recruiter versus yeah. payroll specialist versus HR generalist. Right. Okay, got it. So, so Oxford said there's 702 different jobs that we're that people do. Okay, and when you said these percentages, then um, the 10 to 15 percent were the number of those jobs that would be that would just disappear because they can be yes. fully automated. So, if we look at those section 704 mm-hmm. different categorizations. Mm-hmm. And if there's a job that has 100% repetitive high-volume tasks, but that job only represents 0.01% of the labor force, then I say 0.01% of the labor force is going to go away, and I'm just adding up that math. Okay, I see. I see. So the 10 to 15% was a percentage of the labor force. Yes. Not of the job jobs. Not of the functions. Yeah. Okay, I see. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So... What does that mean then? So we have this data. What um, 
what what does that mean to us in terms of how we go about our careers, our businesses, uh, and so on? What it means is to be thoughtful mm -hmm. and to be uh, introspective, to be curious, and to look at what things mean in your industry. And here, here's what I mean by that. We can look at the job function of truck driver. That's a job function. And there are 3 million people that do that job function in the United States. Now, Mark, if I were to ask you how many people are going to be employed in that job function in 10 years, which are just knee-jerk reaction. Oh, 10 years. See, I, we didn't talk about time scale. I have no idea because eventually with self-driving cars, we won't need truck drivers. But Of course. And that is the key point, by the way, yeah. eventually. But a lot of people's gut reaction is, oh, like zero or just you know a few. And you say, okay, well, maybe, but let's talk about how that change will actually occur. First, let's look at the tech itself. Mm -hmm. Let's look at a autonomous vehicle and when that autonomous vehicle is road ready. And let's have conversations with people at Waymo and Riven and Tesla and talk to them about what is capable. And they will make the statement that they're 90% there. And a lot of people assume the geometric, oh, well, if it took you 10 years to get 90% in another two or three years, but no, because the difficulty of getting to road ready increases logarithmically. And there's a case that could be made that that vehicle will never be road ready. They will never get the tech. Now, I don't believe that scenario, but okay. But when you talk to them, their best case scenario is five years. In five years, they're road ready. And that's their best case. And they said five years, five years ago. So let's be mindful yeah. of that. So I think it's really 10. It might be 12 to 15, but let's give them five. Then you need to make the road itself ready. Because nobody's investing in the repair infrastructure and the sensor infrastructure until the vehicle's road ready because they don't exactly know what the vehicle's going to look like or what's needed. So it can't happen on a parallel path. That has to happen sequentially. And then you need to think about the regulations and how long that's going to take to put in place the regulations for that. I'm giving you your best case of another 10 years before that happens. And then let's think about the companies that engage truckers. The largest trucking company in the United States is a company called Knight Swift. If we took their entire replacement spend and doubled it on trucks and just assumed $150,000 per truck, which I think is ridiculously low, it would take them over 10 years to replace their trucking fleet. And they will do it quicker than everybody else. And I will argue that that 10 years because we shouldn't double their truck acquisition costs and the trucks themselves are going to be much more expensive. It might take them 20 and again, they will do it quicker than everybody else. So now you've got five years, plus 10 years, plus 20 years. The actual reality for truck drivers in the industrialized world is a very long career path that has very limited risks, even though the math would tell us that they are at incredibly high risk because of almost all of their tasks are repetitive by volume tasks. When we look at how long it actually takes the tech to be ready, how long it actually takes the environment and the infrastructure and the related industries and regulation to be ready. When we look at how long it takes for capital deployment within the industries that engage those workers, you start to get a very different picture. And we start to say, wow, the real story about truck drivers is that there's a shortage of them in the industrialized world. There are tens of thousands, and we go, and just in the United States, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands worldwide. And it might be because people are saying, oh, don't go into truck driving because there's no future in that. No, mm. actually, it's a job that someone without a 
higher education can go into and earn a middle-class wage. So Absolutely. isn't that there's, the story we should be telling about truck drivers? There's actually a huge shortage of truck drivers. You know, I, I don't, I deal more with mid to senior level kind of companies that recruit mid to senior level, uh, um, professionals and, 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 and technology people. But, you know, if you take a driving agency, for example, their biggest problem is not getting clients who want drivers. Their biggest problem is they can't get enough drivers with the right licenses and, and so on. Um, for sure. Part of it, I am a hundred percent sure, though I have no data to back this up, is because people go, oh, no, no, don't be a truck driver or, oh, no, I shouldn't be a truck driver because autonomous vehicles. No, you could and should be a truck driver if that is something that matches your skill set, that matches your occupational desires. Mm -hmm. And you shouldn't worry about some fanciful notion that autonomous vehicles are going to take your job in the near term. They are not in the near term. And your point about time horizons is, is incredibly astute. Because the time horizon is important. If you ask me over 50 years, I'd say, yeah, 50 years, we got a problem. Truck drivers, that's 3 million jobs. That is a huge number of jobs in the United States, and we have to help those workers retrain in a very in the long term. But in the near term, definitely not. In the medium term, really, really unlikely. Okay, so I'm, I'm viewing this um, great. This is really interesting, by the way. I'm... At the same time, looking at this from three different perspectives. So there's, well, four really. So there's the perspective of the the workers. There's a perspective of the companies. Mm-hmm. There's a perspective of the society. And then there's a perspective uh, from my audience as the intermediary between, say, the worker and the, and, and the company. Um, and these are all... Um, yeah, it, it, it gets messy to sort of tease out who's going to be come out on top here and who really is going to um, have problems. You mentioned that every time there's been an industrial re- revolution in the past, after the sort of fear mongering and so on, the next phase is there is a real displacement of workers. Um, eventually, it creates better, higher standard of living, you know, less time. Uh, less number of hours worked and uh, and more jobs, but the the more jobs being created are not for the same folks who are displaced, right? That is usually the case. Usually, okay. the case is that workers in industries that are being automated can't just repurpose in that industry. They they have to make very big changes, and this is why we have economic and social dislocation is because those workers are not being supported historically, were not being supported by society in that transition. They were being left behind. Like, oh, let's not worry about the coal workers. That's the coal workers problem. Oh, let's not worry about the manufacturing workers and various rust belts. They're not our problem. They are our problem. They're Mm -hmm. society's problem. And we leave them behind to our collective peril. And these are people that have tremendous skills, but they need to be reskilled and upskilled. And we've done a poor job of this historically. We are facing this right now. And I hope that we not only do a better job, because that's a kind of fanciful hope in and of itself that we just have more enlightened politicians and a more enlightened society. But what actually gives me hope is that technologies are coming on stream, VR training and and the like, that make the reskilling and the upskilling process uh, much cheaper and much quicker. So people may not want to go back to the local community college 
to get upskilled, but they'd be okay sitting and playing a game and end up getting upskilled uh, on a VR headset. Hmm. Interesting. All right. Well, that's uh, that would certainly be cool if that happened. At least we did a better job of that than we have in the past. Tell me what is, so how does this relate to the um, on-demand labor? Because that's really your thing, right? Is, you know, the, the end of jobs, the rise of on-demand workers and agile corporations is the title of the book. So you've given us sort of the context and like the bigger picture of what's going on here, but how does that specifically drive the on-demand labor? So on-demand labor, again, surprising nobody, we're going to start with some history and we're going to start with, start with some data. In the US and the EU, which when these studies were done, the uh, UK was part of the EU, yeah, and so it incorporates them. Uh, Twenty to thirty percent of the workforce has been classified in my definition of on-demand. These were studies by McKinsey over a couple of years, and it has not really changed that much over a twenty or thirty-year period. It has ups and downs, usually counter countercyclically with the economic cycle, and people mistook the growth of the on-demand labor market at the end of the Great Recession global financial crisis as uh, some sort of sustained growth in that sector of the labor market and thus began the prediction of, oh, on-demand is going to be 50% by 2020, which was a absolutely ludicrous prediction that had no basis in history, that had no basis in data, that had no basis in how companies engage workers. And yet it became the standard statement at all HR conferences, which drove me absolutely nuts. And now that we passed 2020 and the on-demand labor market is a little bit bigger, data points to a little bit bigger than it was in 2010. You know what all those people are saying, Mark? Oh, by 2030, the on-demand labor market's going to be 50%. I just want to get them in a room and just start slapping them. Just be like, what are you talking about? How are you making this prediction? Because that has become... Again, this statement that people are making, that companies start thinking about, that workers start thinking about, the data would tell us that on-demand labor will continue its slow and steady growth, and that's what will happen over the next 10 years. So as companies think about how to engage on-demand workers, they need to know there is a slow and steady change. There are certain industries, certain job functions that there is much more on-demand labor. If you want to be an employer of choice across all job categorizations, you need to think about the on-demand labor market. If you are not engaging on-demand labor, you may want to increase your or think about it, or if you're using a little, use a little bit more because you are leaving 20 to 30% of the labor force out of your talent pools if you're not engaging this type of labor. But Business processes and regulation mean a lot of companies can't engage on-demand labor at scale. And so the idea that all of a sudden a bunch of people are going to shift, they haven't over the last 30 years. I see no reason they would suddenly shift now And from a business process standpoint and from a regulatory standpoint, unless there is a fundamental reworking of the regulatory framework the world over, you will not see some huge change in the on-demand labor market you will see continued slow and steady growth as more companies start to engage. The where, where you see it a lot, by the way, Mark, is individual and consumer usage. That we've seen some growth in, and that's the growth that really ends up creating the few percentage point changes we've seen over the last 10 years is 
consumer usage. But remember, when I use Uber, I may all of a sudden go, oh, look, it's a gig worker. The taxi driver before that was a gig worker, at least mm. in the United States. I wouldn't pretend yeah. to understand taxi drivers. Yeah, no, same. It's the world. That person was a gig worker too. You didn't think about him as a gig worker. You didn't engage him or her through an app, but they were a gig worker. So there, there's no fundamental change. One of the things that we have seen with the on-demand labor market <clears throat> is a movement from gray market transactions to formal market transactions, things like dog walkers. Most dog walking pre or 10 years ago happened paid via cash. Much mm -hmm. dog walking today still happens via cash, but a lot of it happens on apps, gig apps, Rover and WAG. And in the United States, that has created millions of incremental 1099 data points. Now, does those millions of incremental data points over the last few years, does that mean there's been a fundamental shift in the labor market? No, not at all. That is the movement of a gray market transaction to the formal market. That person is getting the same work they were getting before. It's just now they're receiving a 1099 for it. Just to clarify the terminology. So 1099 is someone who's self-employed, right? Yes, a 1099 is the form you give to a person that you are making payments to uh, for employment. That is not your employee. IRS form 1099 miscellaneous in the United States. Got it. And a W-2 is an employee. They get benefits and salary and yes. so on. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so what you're really talking about is you're saying there is a rising demand for essentially self-employed work, uh, labor workers as opposed to everybody works for the company. And then we use them either on a project basis or on a flexible basis, depending on what the needs of the company are. Is that what we're, what we're talking about? Because to me, I'm trying to reconcile in my mind, what does the dog walker or the cab driver have in common with the interim executive or the, you know, um, you know, SAP consultant who's contracting with a company for six months or whatever? Um, because they seem like totally different things on the surface. They are completely different things. And that is actually one of the main points that I, I want people to walk away with, which is <laughs> labor markets are incredibly complex. And anytime there's a simple explanation, a simple statement of, oh, this tech exists, therefore all those jobs are going to go. Or on-demand on labor is rising, therefore it's rising in all places and all times. No, no, and no. Right? This stuff is incredibly complicated. We categorize them all as on-demand labor. We categorize the job market as this thing, but it is a 10,000 different things broken down. And to be thoughtful about it, you need to analyze each one of them separately because each one has a very different dynamic. Each one has a very different series of contexts and drivers and regulatory environments and competitive environments and customer interactions, and intellectual property engagements, like everything is different. And so any mass generalization in the world of labor almost always always turns out to be false. Got it. Now that makes a lot of sense. Um, what is the kind of, why did you write this book? What are you hoping will either change or, you know, what are you hoping to, to stimulate with the ideas that you're putting out into the world here? Well, I will tell you that I started writing the book because I was just getting annoyed going to various conferences and, you know, I'd be on panels and people would say things on these panels. And and I am the kind of person that would interrupt somebody else on a panel and be like, I'm sorry, um, but the data here says this, this, and this. How do you juxtapose that data with what you're saying? And many times, almost every time, Mark, they'd go, oh, I, I wasn't aware of that. 
And I would say, but shouldn't you be? Shouldn't you be aware of it if you're going to open your mouth in front of an audience? Shouldn't you be aware of the data on the thing you're talking about? So it was frustration because I don't think that enough people are thinking about job function by job function, job category by job category, employment category by employment category, to our point a moment ago. I don't think enough people are thinking about history. I don't think enough people are thinking about data. I don't think enough people are thinking about how companies actually deploy capital and workers. And when you look at those three, like our example of truckers, like our examples of waiters and waitresses, we can talk about the ATM, which I talk about a lot in the book, you get a very different picture of what may happen in the near term, the medium term, and the long term. And that is what I hope to accomplish, is to bring that kind of critical thinking, that framework for thinking about the future of work, to this discussion about the future of work, because that discussion is an important discussion. It's important for workers, it's important for companies, it's important for communities, it's important for society. And if we're going to be out in the public square talking about things that are that important to families and to society as a whole, it's incumbent upon people to have a logical, reasonable, and defensible argument in what they're saying. And I would say that in the world of work, History, data, and how companies actually engage workers and capital is the context and the appropriate basis for making those predictions. Got it. So if it even serves to raise the um, level of rigor and the amount of the, the sort of foundations upon which people are then talking, having this conversation, then we'll all be able to have much more intelligent conversations about these topics. Um, I hope for much more intelligent conversations on every topic in society. (laughs) And so I will do what I can to drive that conversation in the world of work. Fantastic. Tell me about your future of work prize. What is that? Well, I'll tell you this, Mark, writing a book is really, really hard. <laughs> and I it bet. took me seven years to finish this. Wow. Thing. It's on uh, my list of goals, but it is quite an intimidating uh, prospect. Well, let me throw some advice, yeah. which is get some Tom Sawyer going here. Get some other people <laughs> right. to work on your book with you. And yeah. so I was fortunate enough to meet a lot of people that are shaping the future of work heads of labor unions, heads of staffing firms, uh, heads of investment firms, heads of industry associations, heads of HR at some of the world's largest companies. And I interviewed a lot of all of them for the book. And then I thought, well, why don't I ask them to write what they think the world of work looks like in 2040? We've discussed ad nauseum here, my framework, history, data, how companies actually engage. But each one of them has their own framework. Each one of them has their own experience. Each one of them has incredible perspective. And each one of them is actually shaping this future of work. So what do they think the world looks like in 2040? And I was very fortunate to have a lot of people say yes. A lot of people then had their companies say, no, you can't work on it. We had a lot of other people who said yes, but couldn't make deadlines because books get done under deadlines. And then we had a bunch of people submit, and I called that down to the top 20. And the top 20 are amazing. And I decided that I wanted to do it in the context of the X Prize, where I happen to serve as an advisor on their future of work initiatives. And so we put up a $10 million prize, uh, and each writer 
each of the 20 gets a vote. They can't vote for their own piece. And we will see who this community believes is the most correct in 2040. So wait a second. How is this actually going to work? Is we're going to look at it in 2040 and see who was or wh- who's go- yeah. How else are we going to know who is the most correct? Because okay, it wasn't whose do you think is the most correct. It's right. who is the most correct. Like right. the X Prize is not a conceptual prize. It's who yes. can make a vehicle driven by solar power make it across you know a desert in ten hours. You either do it or you don't. Whichever team yeah. does it first wins. And so whoever is the most correct, and since I, what I wanted to do, Mark, was to have them list out like 15 statistics, well, yeah. to me to give them 15 statistics, and they had to take a guess as to where those statistics are now. My publisher thought that would be the most uninteresting thing to read, just a big <laughs> data table. So I was vetoed on that. But they each put together a narrative of what they believe the world looks like. Some are very data-driven and give a lot of statistics. Others are, nah, it's kind of going to look like this. But they're all amazing reads, and I am super fortunate to uh, have them as a part of this uh, project. Fantastic. Wow, that's awesome. Well, I've ordered my uh, my copy. I haven't read it yet. Um, it's on its way. Uh, for people listening, if you want to find out more, of course, the book is available on Amazon or your local bookstore, but also go to jeffwald.com. It's J-E-F-F-W-A-L-D. Jeff, one more thing just before you go for fun. I You... In my preparation for this, I came across the fact that you're a Tony Award-winning producer. How does that fit into the everything else you've told me? Well, I'll say this, Mark. I love a good pivot. And not a pivot with my career. That, that to me, is very dangerous. A pivot with my, my mind space, if you will. Okay. And me taking some time to kind of flip this way and do some investing in things I don't understand, flip that way and do some writing in some things I don't understand. And so I was given the opportunity to uh, invest at the producer level of uh, a series of Broadway productions. And it's something that I do. And one of them, we were fortunate enough to uh, to win the Tony Award. Most of them, by the way, I've lost all the money I put into it. So let's, <laughs> that, is, that is the context of, of Broadway investing. I think net-net, I am massively down on all of my Broadway investments. But uh, Hilarious. being a part of A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder, where we went to the Tony Awards and I got to bring my mom and go to Radio City Music Hall. And that was a special, special night. Wow, that's super fun. Well, listen, I've really enjoyed this conversation, Jeff. Thanks for thanks for your time. Thank you so much for leading a very thoughtful, very interesting discussion. My pleasure. And uh, good luck with the book. I hope you sell a lot of copies and uh, I'm looking forward to reading it. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to The Resilient Recruiter. I know how busy recruiters are, so I'm honored that you're investing this time with me each week. I don't take your attention for granted. That's why I'm going all out to deliver value for you here, real insights you can apply to improve your business. And if you really wanna help me to reach a wider audience and impact more people, please consider leaving the show a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you leave me a review, please reach out and let me know so I can thank you personally. Please hit the subscribe button and I'll see you next time.